Welcome to Lemmy Works, brought to you by Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. We are inspiring parents, mentors, and communities as they embark on the journey of transformational project-based education. Hi, this is Tatiana Fallon. Hi, this is Heidi Christensen. We're so excited to be your hosts. Welcome back to the podcast today. Tati and I are with Anelody Milne, one of the founders of Lemmy. Anelody, I am so grateful you're here today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about <laughs> the history of Lemmy? How did you and um, Tiffany come up with this idea and, and what did you do to get it started? Oh, I hope I don't tell a different story than other people remember because my memory is so not as good, sharp as some others, but I will tell you what I can, what my basic memories are. Tiffany had been uh, mentoring with Oliver DeMille for um, a few years and she had the vision of creating a community that would be for specifically for scholars to uh, nurture their classical education and also to have a place where mentors could be actually grown because I think she was of the mind that teaching in the traditional way was much better known than mentoring in the more classical way. And so I think that was really where she, her brain was headed was I'd like to, I'd like to figure out how to create these two things. And I was already, uh, my background is in theater and uh, I was working at the, the, I was working as the costume shop manager at the Grand Theater in Salt Lake City. And I was, I was also a theater major. I had been a theater major at the, the University of Utah and uh, dropped out of that program because I was doing family, but realized I probably was less interested in the performance aspect of theater than I was for the, the production aspect at, at that, at, at the point that I dropped out. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, that's why I went to work at the theater and was loving it and having really, you know, living, living my dreams. And, um, my children started getting older. And as my children started getting older, I was always inviting, well, my oldest daughter, especially inviting her into my world, which is something I think came naturally to me anyway. And once the theater gets into your blood, it hardly ever leaves. And so um, I think she kind of picked up on the theater bug and I could see that it would be something that would be advantageous for her. And as, as I was really going inside, trying to discover in myself what I wanted in my life, which I think uh, I think I probably do this more naturally than some people now that I'm I'm at this end of my life, I'm discovering that some of the things that uh, I engaged in internally were 
probably not pe not things that people norm naturally do, but um, I was always in a place of how can I merge the things I love to do with the things I really want to preserve for my life. So uh, things I wanted to preserve for my life is my marriage. Things I want to preserve for my life is my family. You know, uh, making this sort of mental note of the things uh, that I felt like were long-term investments, but I'm, I, I tend to be a very short-term thinker. I like to have, I'm the kind of person who has, I would say, short-term vision, whereas Tiffany has huge, amazing long-term vision, which made us a really good pair. And so once I, I formulated in my mind the things that I was loving in my life in the moment, theater and costume design and and I had amazing mentor there in that field and something I wanted to invest into the future, which would be my children. I kind of looked at those two worlds and decided that they were not things. And I say that I thought would morally blend very well. Is that I don't know if that's a good way to describe it other than I didn't really want my daughters, my kids growing up in a world that I knew could be very adultish. Does that make sense? And so, yeah. but I also, I also knew the transformative nature of theater. In fact, I just recently listened to this amazing podcast by, uh, I'm, I am now a mental health counselor. I've been in that field for um, a few years now. And so I do lots of research. That's kind of where all my interest is right now. And, and Bessel van der Kolk, the author of The Body Keeps the Score. I just listened to him talk about his theater program that they just implemented for mental health aspects and helping people who have trauma live different roles, play out different roles so that they can actually begin to learn how to separate their themselves from trauma. So I already, I, I, I sort of knew in, instinctively because I had been in theater myself as a, a as a kid, um, as a youth, and I knew what it did for my self-esteem, what it did for me as a merging young adult. I wanted to be able to give my children that without having to introduce them into a really, um, I would call it maybe volatile morally volatile world, you know, lots of swearing, lots of, you know, sexual liaisons, stuff like that, that I wasn't necessarily wanting to expose my children to, right? So I had, I decided that I wanted to create something in my community for my youth with theater. And I already started doing something like that. When I went to a seminar where, where Oliver DeMille was speaking. And I think at the time it might've been, I'm not exactly sure, Shannon Brooks, somebody who said, oh, you need to meet this woman in our community or this woman, Tiffany Earle, because she has a vision that's similar to yours. And you probably should, you guys should probably meet up, right? And I had just started in this world of classics. I was actually teaching a Shakespeare program. That's what I had started with my kids and the youth in my area. And I had no foundation in, in Shakespeare whatsoever when I started it. 
I mean, even though I was a theater major, I didn't know anything about Shakespeare. But because I didn't want to pay royalties, I that was pretty much my only choice. So I was, you know, delving into a world I was foreign to me. But um, I guess I was going down the path, that right path anyway. Now that I real, I, I look at it, I think, oh yeah, that's where I was headed. And so when I was introduced to leadership education and the classical model, specifically, I wanted to say the two things that I think are very unique about what we do uh, in the in the leadership education model is the five environments, which I actually would say there are six environments because I always add simulations to that environment. Um, and those five environments come from the book, Jack Barzin, Teacher in America. So he would be like in the fifties, right? So it wouldn't, he wouldn't be necessarily uh, defining things from many, you know, being a being a mentor or teacher in you know way long ago, but probably looking back on oh what is it that we're doing that's working? That's one that's super super um, I think unique to how we do leadership education and how that's probably different from uh, what most people think of when they think of classical education because when most people think of classical education they think of what I call the essentialist model, which would be the model that comes out of the late 1800s in America, which is actually the prairie schools or the common or normal schools, which used classics to teach all the, the, um, to teach the curriculum, but they tended to pull out pieces of classics. Would that be Susan Wise Bauer? Is that um, I think that she has a great vision of what the normal schools or the common schools were uh, like. I do actually love Susan Weisbauer's book because what she does is um, makes the content of the classics uh, really accessible. So maybe, yeah, because because the essentialist model would definitely say, and this is what I I would disagree with, I think we use more of what what I would consider a perennialist model, which I think are two different things, of course. Um, The essentialist model says this is what is essential for your knowledge. And the perennialist model says, as you get exposed to this thing, it's going to come back around in your life and you're going to get more of it. And then you're going to get more of it when you need it. So let's say the uh, concept of, of government that has resurfaced and come around in my life several times and I've had to redefine and re-delve into it in ways that help me have a deeper and deeper understanding of what I what I really want to embrace in my life. The same thing with the way I feel about and, and believe about God, the, the same, the, it's just perennial. It's constantly sort of growing up, getting strong, going into dormancy, getting into a winter this is what perennialism is is it, it's seasonal it's now it's there it's this life thing under the ground and when i need it again in the spring it will grow back up and i will have an opportunity to look at it again which is to me a very more more organic way of thinking about my education i think the reason why the essentialist view has uh, really took root um, in the late 1800s was because everyone was hoping to uh, 
Well, I think there is a lot of things. The the industrial. Oh, but you can test it. You can test it, right? Like you can test yeah. the essentialists. Like I could create a test for that. I can't really create a test for like some of the books we read in Key of Liberty because maybe you didn't care about George Washington's story of the bullets, you know? Maybe you cared more about what happened to him when he was a kid, like surviving smallpox, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if you're looking at a perennial method that what the kid needs to learn is going to be going to be learned, right? Versus right. you learn what I tell you, you should know. Yes. Yes. And I, and I actually even think that's, well, that gave birth to the next, the next way that we think about education, which I don't want to get into right here, but we can have that discussion. I would love to have that discussion because I really, this, the next one, which would be more progressive. And then the last one, which is as existential, which is where I think we are in that existential education um, model. I, I think it's just so far removed from where we came from that holistic learning approach, uh, which was more of a lifetime investment. Um, anyway, going back to, uh, to my concept of what I think I was trying to give my children. I, when I met up with a leadership education model, the, those were the, the two things that I really thought were very different for us is that we had that sort of long-term perennialist view and that we really believed in the five environments and mentors really became key and part and parcel to those two things because you can't really, a teacher doesn't, a teacher in the professor sort of way doesn't fit very well into those two things that the uh, education is a lifetime investment and that we have these environments that we that we create to expose you to this lifetime investment right yeah definitely i think it's really hard with the current system of education for teachers to implement either one of those concepts because they have to teach to the test in order. I mean, in some areas, it's actually their their job is tied to that. Their income is tied to that. Right, which is called outcome-based education, which is really fascinating to me because um, if you read uh, the Underground History of American Education, which I don't know if anyone here is is got that much, has that much fortitude to read that entire book. <laughs> By John Taylor Gatto, because it is, it is beefy. But in there, he says right there, uh, he talks about how outcome-based education was experimented with in the late 1800s in the United States. It was also experimented with in England at the same time. And England decided that it was contradictive to their goals for education that it was actually not helping them to reach their goals. And so they, um, and they thought it was detrimental to the, to the teachers themselves and their teaching style. And so they actually took it out of their system, but we continued to re try to implement it, try to implement it, try to implement, implement it until we sort of forced it into, we forced the teachers into this box. 
Okay, and Elodie, I, right now, we're going to have to have you come back and talk more about all of this education stuff, because, I mean, I want to know. And so, <laughs> this is fascinating, but oh, I really want you to tell us all about Lemmy. I mean, this this is so interesting. I, I already, I every single time it's I- It's tangential. I to, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Every single time I listen to you, you know, on all of the recordings I've listened to you, you know, to with you on them, I end up with a huge list of books and Amazon loves you. You really should like <laughs> set up a link or something and you, you'd be set for life mm. with all of the, <laughs> the uh, referrals for books. But as I'm sitting here talking to him, I'm realizing these are, again, I think about, uh, I'm just going in and I'm just, I'm working really hard at just going back to my core and what calls to me and what I've learned from what calls to me. And I'm realizing, wow, this is so much of stuff that I've just, it's lain, it's lain dormant in my life for quite some time. Because uh, when, when my children grew up, I sort of uh, went a different, went down a different path, but let's go back to this uh, place where I was meeting Tiffany. Uh, someone says, I think you would be interested in meeting this woman. And uh, they hooked us up and we decided to do a, at the time it was a youth conference we called YFA, Youth for America. And it was just my school that I had created in Bountiful and Tiffany's school that she had created in Cedar City, Utah. And um, it was based on the concept that Cleon Skousen had created this idea for a youth conference called Youth for America um, that had kind of lying dormant for a while. And he, she wanted to sort of give, you know, rise to it again. And it, you know, that actually became that also morphed into something else, but we were trying to create that youth conference that we would share and we'd be able to invite a lot of different other schools together. And I love the idea of Youth for America. I would love to have that re-implemented. Somebody else took charge of those youth conferences and they changed the name to Youth for Freedom. And it's interesting because um, I'm actually not... I think that's a very existential way to describe your life if you want to be youth for freedom. It's very existential, which if that's how you want, if that's the, what you're trying to just to to experience is is and and teach is is freedom. That's different from what we're trying to teach in in the concept of freedom and what we're trying to what we were trying to teach in about America are two different things. Just saying because the word freedom has has its own definition attached to it these days which we are trying to we were trying to hold on to the classical definition of freedom so anyway it's it's interesting <clears throat> so we got together and we did that with um another one of our really good friends um and the leaders in our you know we 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 both had a lot of really amazing staff, people who are helping us, Tiffany and I, um, make that happen. Um, Elaine Davies, Joan L. Reed, um, some beautiful, amazing women who were very supportive of us. But 
Tiffany and I realized that we shared a very common vision and we both had passion for this common thing. And I would say we, the time in our life, our paths were crossing. We were, I was, I was in a position to be a mentor to her and she was in a position to be a mentor to me, which makes a very unique dynamic. So I think she and I saw ourselves as friends, mentors, admirers, you know, our relationship became very deep, very quickly. And, um, you know, as her family grew and as my family grew and things changed in our lives, uh, we did actually end up going in different directions. It was very important for me that I did that because I've been gone down a road that was much, which is, is the place I needed to be, which, you know, again, this, that perennial thing, right? This is all about growth. But as we got together and spent time talking about what our visions were, I think that was like the birth of, of Lemmy. Tiffany already had in the back of her mind that she wanted to create, I told you, she wanted to create a place where she could train up mentors. That, that was really what she wanted to do. And because I had already sort of created a school where we were training up these youth in the classics, and she had been working on that, which I don't think was necessarily her, her um, greatest vision. You know, she knew that that was part of what needed to happen in order to make this other thing happen for her. And I was probably the other way around, didn't care all that much about training up mentors. I really cared about training up these youth. And it was a good, it was a good marriage for us because I had, I brought in the vision of what the youth needed. And she literally brought in the vision of what the mentors needed. So I did a lot of the curriculum development and she and I together did a lot of the mentor training development together based on that stuff that we, that I had created. Well, she and I created together. I would say I brought in Shakespeare. I brought in Kivlery with, with Tatiana. Um, <clears throat> she, she created pyramid project. She created, um, the, um, quest, but I developed it all. I developed the third semester of quest. We have had other people who've created other things that we've implemented but Tatiana created Sword of Freedom. All of the curriculum began to be systematized in a way that would promote mentoring skills. That is really what our whole concept was. And there were things that we uh, sort of rebelled against doing, like creating rubrics. We rebelled against that because we didn't want to put people in a box. We wanted them to be able to have that perennial, we're going to expose them to this. We're going to give them all kinds of opportunities to learn. And they're going to learn what they're going to learn. We'll test them. We'll, we'll give them environments. We'll let them <clears throat> percolate in it. And if we created a rubric, then I told, I just told 
my mentor that she's in a box and that was Tiffany and I both just really rebelled against that. And I know we've been really sorely criticized for it, but that was sort of the foundation. Well, is that why you guys have the ladders? You created the ladders? Yes. So it's like doing climbing the, out of the box. <laughs> yeah. Instead of giving rubrics for our stuff, we gave foundational principles that mentors needed to be able to look for in their in their youth. And that's exactly why we, we created the ladders. And I know there were so many people say, well, what's the rubric? What what's the goal? The goal is that you're a practice scholar and you're working towards becoming apprentice scholar by doing harder things. <laughs> but what's the goal of this thing we're teaching them? The goal of this thing that they're te you're teaching them is that they're able to figure out that they have ideas in their head that they want to try to get down on a piece of paper. <laughs> Tatiana, <laughs> what are you thinking? <clears throat> I'm just laughing because... I remember doing trainings. I mean, I don't, you and Tiff are pretty gutsy because I think I was, I was pretty young when I did my first training. I think I was 16. And well, um, to be fair, you actually wrote Key of Liberty. So we sort of thought we needed to have the one who wrote it <laughs> train it. <laughs> yeah. Just, but anyways, I just remember people being so Wait, angry okay. at me. Hold on one second. I'm going to go on that for just a second. Tadiana. Do you remember sitting down at the dining room table and I knew what, how to formulate, how to package a curriculum, but I literally knew nothing, literally nothing, N-O-T-H-I-N-G, nothing about American history. Do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, really I look funny. back on those days and think, wow, I was stupid, but well, no, I was uneducated. But yes, how could I teach Key of Liberty? I, I, I can package what your knowledge was, but there was no way I had the, I didn't have the knowledge to do it, right? Anyway, you were saying that you, you remember people being upset about it. <laughs> well, I just remember people being so frustrated with me. And I think part of, I mean, I was naive. I didn't have kids. I was 16. You know, I didn't understand where they were coming from, but I was just like, you just, just do it. Just do it. Like you don't need all the answers. Go find the answers. Why, I, why do I have to give you all the answers? If I give you all the answers, then you'll never learn. <laughs> and I remember like looking back being like, man, I was a jerk. Like I, I really should have more empathy and compassion for these really stressed out moms who are trying to do something that <laughs> is really hard. You know, like now, yeah. now yeah. if it's not on audio, I don't read it. Like that's like where I'm at, you know, like, what? yeah, no, I, I, I actually really want to read a book right now. And I got a book at the library and I was like trying to find time when I could sit down and read and not like have my kids. And there's like 20 minutes before I fall asleep. You know, so like having to create like, you know, a lecture and I, I think when we, I get why Lemmy doesn't hold hands through certain things, um, but I think like it's a, I, I see why people are resentful or mad because it's not, it's hard. It's so hard. It is not well, easy. Well, the truth is, you know, what we're, what we're asking people to do is first of all, truly outside of the box of anything they've ever thought about doing in their whole entire lives. But second of all, like I said about myself, really probably rings true to most of our audience. Something inside of them are saying, yes, that's what education is about. 
We're interrupting this broadcast to remind you to share and subscribe. Also, be sure and check out our website at lemmymentortraining.com. So, and we're really asking them to do the impossible. We really are. We're asking them to do things that I think when I look back at my life, I'm thinking, oh, man, I just dove in head first. I didn't even hold my breath. I probably gagged up water. <laughs> I probably, I probably, I probably drowned several times. <laughs> they probably had to bring me up and resuscitate me. <laughs> oh yeah. But I also like, I was, I was actually thinking about this today about how frustrating it can be when we fail, you know, just thinking about um, dad's project going on right now and how, how frustrating he is that he's not growing at the speed he wants to be going. And then I was like, yeah, but when you reach for the stars and you don't look like you succeed, you reached for the stars. So you're going to get out of the planet's atmosphere, right? So it's like, even if you don't hit that star, you're going to get out of the atmosphere of the earth. Mm -hmm. You know, so like, you know, even though he's frustrated and still stuck, like he still has 25,000 stories told. Like that's 25,000 mm -hmm. people that, you know, mm -hmm. this is a different mm -hmm. topic. But, you know, so I think a lot of times when we ask mentors to reach for the stars, even though it's scary and it looks impossible and you'd feel like you're drowning, you still leave the atmosphere because you reach for the stars. Whereas like if we don't ask you to like do the impossible, then how far do you jump? You know, how far do you get? Maybe, you know, like a skyscraper, which is cool and awesome. And then you could be like, yay, hey, I got my goal. But it's like, yeah, but by trying to get a goal that felt unattainable, you went way further than you ever could have. And I think that's what Lemmy, I was actually wanting to ask you this question. Why do you think Lemmy still is around? We're all like, I know in 2008, when the financial crisis hit, you know, the leadership education world took a huge tumble. Like, yeah. you know, George with collapsed shortly after and lots yeah. of things collapsed and there were lots of businesses starting up around helping and building yeah. mentoring. But Lemmy is the only one that is still in operation. Why do you think that Tip is? Tiffany Earl. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, I don't know what it is about her. It was the calling that God gave her. And she had a long-term vision, a long-term view that that would survive things like that. So that's my first answer. However, I would also say um, we're. I feel like something inside everyone is looking for something deeper in their education, and we promise to train mentors who can give it to their children. And so we are trying to hit two birds with one stone and people like it because they think, okay, I can get my, my education at the same time, or I can, I can have my vision fulfilled at the same time that um, my children get what I want to give them that I didn't get. I'm thinking about, so I, I have been, I've had been all around a lot of homeschoolers, a lot of people, sorry, I prefer to call them home educators. I have been around a lot of them. And uh, they're just my favorite people in the whole world because they are so willing to think outside of the box, but it's really scary for them to be where they're at. 
I think when they meet up with what Lemmy has to offer them, they all of a sudden say, oh, I know what my next right step is. I think about, so I spent years, you know, building my school in Bountiful, which still is in existence today. How cool is that? They still do Shakespeare. They still have Key of Liberty. They still have Quest. I mean, I don't, I'm not in charge of them and they still keep going. That might actually be, now that I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking out loud, that might want, be another one of the reasons because Commonwealth schools are not mom schools. Commonwealth schools in the first place were hold, wholly designed on creating a, a bylaws or a constitution that would last beyond the person who started it. That might be. Well, and I also think that comes from Tiffany's brilliance and forms. You know, like when I remember when Tiffany first started teaching, I, I can't remember that when you were preparing the, the call on forms, you had spent a long time on the phone with Tiff. And I remember some of the conversations, obviously only hearing one side of them, but I remember thinking, whoa, there's something here that is really hard to understand, but super essential to something. And I remember the first time you tried to explain forms to me, it was like so over my head. And I'm like, I don't get this, but I'm sure it's important. <laughs> yes, because I think it's, I think two things that, that Lemmy is trying to do is create a school form or actually, you know, Lemmy doesn't necessarily promote the Commonwealth school. It doesn't own the Commonwealth school. Um, I did create the Commonwealth school and I wrote the book, but uh, Brenda Hawes kind of took over my Commonwealth school stuff, but it base it's a basic form, so it's not like somebody owns it. Uh, but you're right; it's the for the idea that there's two there's different types of forms of home educators, community building uh, platforms, and the Commonwealth school was really based on uh, principles that were long lasting rather than short-sighted. Yeah, let me right now, we have a uh, a project, it's an adult project and it's um, a school builder, you know, school leadership building. So it's, we can support communities in that way um, to build schools. Yeah. So it's really cool. And it's based a lot on all the stuff that you guys started at the beginning. Well, um, so going back to Tatiana's comment about forms, I think that was also what uh, Tiffany's brilliance really was. You know, when when we when we looked at how we wanted to teach um, mentoring, we looked at the form. That that's really where she always started. Was what is the form? What are we trying to? What form are we trying to promote? Well, we're, like I said, we're trying to promote a form that includes this perennial idea that education is a lifetime pursuit and that we're laying down a foundation in these ages. And also that we have certain environments that we want to create that in. And, and as long as we create, we, so uh, thinking about, you know, how do you create the foundation for a building you use forms and that's what we were doing and I think that's 
I do think that that is the foundation of why it's it's lasted. I want to go back to the conversation about what you said, the scholarship ladders. So, and Tiffany is a very good student. What she does really well and what I think I picked up on was she translates information very quickly to application. And so uh, she had just, I want to say she had just read a book on forms. I'm trying to remember which book it was. I was, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I just don't remember what book it was. She was, she had been reading and I know she'd been mentoring with Oliver. So it might've been Oliver who, by the way, I just have to tell you, I probably is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. Oliver Navillas, along with Rachel, the two of them, I make a, a beautiful, amazing pair. And that's not said out of hero worship. It's, you know, it, that's true. That's my true observation. Anyway, I can't remember the book she was being exposed to. I know she'd been mentoring by mentored by Oliver. And we, we were in a, the car driving. I can't remember where we were driving, but she said, I remember her saying to me, we have to have something to give our mentors if we're not going to give them a rubric. And that's when we started to brainstorm what it was we were going to give them. And that's that was the birth of the scholarship ladders to help them see that there that there is progress that we can help them help our students make from practice scholar to all the way to to mentored scholar we we, we called it that there was progress that, that can be made and that we there are certain markers we can look for i think sometimes our ment our mentors have a really hard time finding and seeing those markers I think that's, we have to change the way we see things, but we're so busy, you know, in the content, in the, in the classroom or whatever it is we're doing that we forget to look at the individual child and say, Hmm, is this happening? And, and Tiffany and I can describe it in an ideal way, but you, the mentor has to have to see it in real time. And and work with it in real time, which is part of the art of mentoring, right? Yeah. Um, and I think this was what um, one of the things that when I, when I did teach the, when Tiffany and I worked um, on the, on the um, seminar with Oliver um, the, on the scholarship, uh, on um, scholar phase, and we were trying to help Oliver see what we were seeing, that there was there that the parents and mentors and teachers needed to needed to get a bigger a greater vision of what it looked like because it seemed to be love of learning for them wasn't that hard to, uh, to conceptualize. It's very natural. That's the natural state of things. That was the unschooling, if you want to call it that. But you, you know, if you look at the Patrick Henry model, you will realize that you can only unschool for so long and then you really have to kick into something different. And what does that look like? 
and when do you start it and how fast does it go? And so that's what we were trying to spell out for people. And that's much different from, I mean, it's, it's definitely much more natural. I mean, that's one of the things that really, I know when I was first introduced to leadership education, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much closer to how kids really are rather than, I mean, I know today, I mean, I, I, I have since, you know, gotten my teaching credential and, you know, have worked for school where I had to look at all of these standards that I had to have kids meet. And I mean, eventually that was what, you know, pushed me out because I'm like, okay, these standards have are no artificial. Yeah. They're so artificial. They have no, they don't make sense for so many of these kids. And I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I think it goes back to what Tatiana was saying, the, you know, it's measurable, those, those artificial standards, um, they, they think they're measurable. And so they, and somebody has to justify having their job, you know, somebody someone's out there saying, my job is to make sure that everything is standardized. And so I have to justify my job by making these artificial standards. This is a good idea. It's not based on developmental psychology at all. No, just no. so you know, it it literally is not based on any science developmentally. I I need to explain that to you. Yeah, <laughs> this is the and this is the this would be the podcast that we talk about those different points, uh, worldviews about about knowledge and education. Yeah, yeah, we definitely have to do that. Yeah, I, I'm seeing though that the the ladders that you guys created. There is some measuring. I know, I mean, as mentors, you know, for these mentors, we train them to look at the ladders. It's like, okay, where are you having problems? Go back to the ladders. So it is something that helps us measure in a way, but it's more with our spiritual eyes rather than boxes that we check off or boxes that we try and stuff the kids into and all of that. Yeah. And you know what, actually, I'm really glad you brought that up, Heidi, because I think we are in this, uh, let's say, scientific world, we are invited to um, disregard, doubt, even fear our own intuition. Yeah, I had this huge epiphany when we were talking to Angela about uh, what leadership education is. It, it, requ- it requires a lot of faith and a faith in, a, in the individual. But so then as I was, because I'm a slow thinker, (laughs) maybe I'm just a slow processor. I don't know. But I I will have something, epiphany, and then several days later have another one. (laughs) But I had another epiphany and I was like, you know why America worked is because we had people with immense faith, but we also had people who, who created forms like the law. And when I first read the John Adams book, I really admired him, but it really hurt me. And I was so frustrated with him that he defended the um, Boston Massacre soldiers. Um, It really made me very like, what the heck? Why'd you do that? Like, that was like, they were terrible, you know? And then, I mean, I read it when I was like 
15. So, I mean, now then I'm older and I, I read it again. I realized, like, no, this is the most beautiful, amazing man on the planet because he's realizing that, yes, what they did was wrong, but the law has to be upheld because without the law, there's no freedom. And so I feel like the balance in leadership education comes when you have immense faith in a child or an individual, but at the same time, there's truth and there's a standard and there's law. That doesn't mean that 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 law is is applied to everybody at the same exact way, but it exists and you can't live in a world where that doesn't exist. So I want to just point something out to you, Tatiana, that you you actually witnessed for us in lifetime. What you just said to us was, I used to think this way. And now that I've been thinking back on it and I re-exposed myself to it. Now I think this way and I'm growing in this and I'm, you said I'm a slow process or something like that. No, you're, you're actually experiencing education in a perennial way. It's growing in you and amazing, right? You revisited the story of John Adams in your adulthood. You were exposed to him when you were what? 12, 13. And you, it's been percolating in you. Yeah, somewhere in the back recesses of my mind. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's uh, one of the also things that I, I love about Lemmy is that when you get exposed to a classic, it's just something that sticks with you. Because, and I don't know exactly why, but it's something that like you just... I have visceral memories of reading John Adams, you know, mm-hmm. I wish I still had my copy, but I really destroyed it. So I probably, I, you know, I got a new one, but um, like I have visceral memories of a lot of things with these classics that you can't, they're just so powerful. They just change you so much. Like, yeah, you brought up Bastiat's The Law. And I remember reading that for the first time thinking, I don't get this it's so confusing to me what is this it doesn't make any sense to me and then I had to I took a class well I have a I have a degree at George with from George with now and so I had to go back and read it and I and I I'm adding my pieces of the of my knowledge to to and then I read the book again and I'm like what oh that's what that means I remember having that visceral response wait I read this book why didn't I understand this? That's one of the awesome things when our kids get to, and our mentors get to go through the whole Lemmy continuum. I mean, I look at these kids, I'm I'm uh, mentoring Key of Liberty this year for my community. And my youngest son is in uh, his first year of Quest. And Key of Liberty, they're like, it's all, okay, this is their first experience. But in Quest, they are making all of these connections and we're laying the foundation for making connections mm-hmm. in key. In key of liberty. Yep. That's exactly yeah. correct. Yeah. And then our mentors do exactly. And in Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes. And our mentors and do I- the same thing. They, they go th- through one training and it's like, okay, this is a lot. I don't get it. I am overwhelmed. <laughs> fire hose me. Yeah. Fire hose. <laughs> and then another, they go through another training, another time. It's like, 
okay, this is starting to be make a little bit more sense, you know? And then I know it took me until my third one to really, mm. oh my gosh. And I still am making connections. I mean, just the other day, mm. I was listening to one of the classic calls and um, I think, yeah, and Elodie, it was you talking about how somebody else was going through these, it was the Scholar Ladders presentation this one woman went through it and she was coming back for the fourth time. And she said the first time she just got, she barely got anything because the fire hose effect. The second time it started to sink in. The third time she got it in her head. She came back for the fourth time to get it in her heart. Wow. And yeah, I mean, that that's really, that is the education, leadership education in mm -hmm, a nutshell, being willing to keep coming and keep learning. And that mm -hmm. perennial well, and yes. I think also the perennial model, it is not something like, okay, so I've been recently getting into agriculture. It's something that I'm really passionate about and I really want to do more of and someday we'll be able to, but um, right now I just have my little gardens and puppies. <laughs> so like that's where my baby steps are. But um, I've been doing a lot of research on um, the rest it's called restoration agriculture it's a, it's a different type of agriculture and the uh emphasis is in the soil that you spend all your energy and resources and time putting it into the soil um not the product not the product but the soil and if you do that right you can take an orchard that would normally take you six years to mature if you spend one whole year working just on your soil you could have your orchard in four Right. So it's like, but you didn't plant your trees and you're not, it's not like, oh, I'm planting trees. You're working on your, your orchard. And, and I'm, I'd like to actually add to what Tatiana is saying, because I think in the information age where we are, I think inundated, let's just, you know, TikTok shorts. We're inundated with information, 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 information overload. If we allow information to be the priority in our minds, we lose the education of the heart. That is so true. I agree. And I think we inundate um, the mind with things that are trivial and unimportant. And it, it backs up the system in the brain and it, it doesn't allow for enough percolating, enough downtime, enough thought. It's interesting because I, I'm helping my boss right now, uh, organize his book on marriage and we work every, he has a plethora of information. He has his lectures and he has his classes and he has his writings. And we're basically coalescing all of that into a book. And my job has been to take all the information and start putting it into order, you know, creating a form out of it. Cause that's what I do. That's what I've always done. That's what I actually think I'm good at. I think that's why Lemmy, what we did at Lemmy happened because I was able to take all that and put it into a a form we could use a, a format in that in I think Tatiana would agree right that's that's sort of what I mostly yeah, it's, brought it's a, it's a really amazing genius <laughs> like people don't realize how taking the complex to the simple is not easy 
Yeah. Uh, yes. And so I had a conversation with my boss. We meet once a week and we go over everything that I'm doing. And um, I was going through some of his stuff um, and I formatted it in a way. Again, we're talking about form. I formatted in a way that he's like, wow, actually, I really like the way you think. I never thought to think to put it that way, but that's exactly what I say. And then he went in and started talking about some of the other conversations that he's had with the leaders. I'm, I'm a, I, I'm the director of one of the programs. And so he meets with the directors of the programs every month. And he was talking about how he was having these conversations with these different directors. And he said, Anility, I try with all my soul to try to get these directors to get it in their heart to begin to think in ways that are more global and not just be thinking in, oh, you taught, we're taught this at school. And so, you know, this is what you're, this is, you just regurgitate what you're taught at school, right? He says, I, how do I help them do what you do? I said, oh, well, you give them a liberal arts education at first. And actually, I think Yalom, Victor, Victor Yalom, he is a, like a, um, he's like a, one of the most sort of like father of psychology and psychotherapy um, from the, you know, when, when therapy started to kind of formulate, he basically said, if you want, he, somebody asked him it, what, because this is a master's degree you have to have. And he says, what, kind of undergraduate degree should these people who are becoming therapists have? And he said they should have a liberal arts education. But, you know, then this show social workers came along and said, no, let's give them a social work undergrad. Well, let's give them a psychology undergrad. The really, uh, Jordan Peterson knows the reason why he is brilliant is, and he's a, he's a psychologist. He's a clinical psychologist. He's basically a therapist like me, except he has a, he has a PhD and he's super smart, but he has, he has a liberal arts education. What makes him brilliant? That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to create that in people. Yeah. And people who can, who can think. And at a young age too. And, and that's the thing that's hard for me is like, if parents don't grasp that, then they take it away from their kids right when they could have the freedom to do it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so like if you get into Quest and you finish Quest, let's say you, you you started at 12, you finished at 16, from 16 to 18, if you could get a mentor, you could really get a transformational liberal arts mm -hmm. education and then go to college at a regular age or get a career or whatever and, mm -hmm. and figure out life. But like, we don't do that because it's scary and there's it, like, okay, now my, my child needs to be a functioning adult needs to do this, mm -hmm. you know, but it's like, but I, I was pondering the other day, like, what is the ultimate goal and what does America ultimately need? And to me, it was like, we just need really amazing parents. And, and Kathy in her podcast, she was like, yeah, let me heals generations. That's what it does that it heals generations. If you can get your own education and you can 
you can, you know, widen the gap between stimulus and response and have healthier responses to the crises in life that occur. And then you can raise your children better. And then you can, your children and your grandchildren can be better. And then that's how we, we get healthy people who function, you know, mm -hmm. which is really what we're, what's the crisis in America right now. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. Well, it's a crisis in America because we've left the classics. So you brought something up I want to um I want to bring back. You said people get uh, we live in a hard world because we it's so unideal <laughs> because we make we invite kids to be kids way too long and then but we extend out that we extend out their adolescence by saying let's go ahead and not graduate them until they're 18 years old and tell them they have to have four years of high school before they can go on to college. And so these four years of high school become the most important thing they ever do in their life to get into college. And so if you don't do it right here, you're going to screw up their life forever. Well, if we did things a little bit differently, if we let the organic things of life happen, we would actually all be pretty much okay. I want to bring this to your attention because I have a son-in-law who is a surgeon and he didn't decide he wanted to be a surgeon until he was, I think, 33. Is that correct, Tatiana? Yeah, like, yeah, 30 something, yeah. 30 something. He, want, he decided when he was 30 something to go to medical school. And he's a surgeon. And I'm going to tell you what, he's going to be a trusted surgeon because he's older. <laughs> and he's got a lot of experience under his belt. So he's going to probably be the best in his field. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have to do other things to get him there, right? He, he had to do a lot of exploring in his life. But he didn't have to go straight from high school getting straight A's to getting into medical school. I have a client who, um, she wants to be a veterinarian. It's a big goal because apparently that's even harder to get into, into veterinarian school than it is in medical school. It's a very big goal. And her, her parents are freaked out. They're freaked out. Go your homework. I'm just trying to help you. I tell you this stuff because I love you. And she's just full of all their fear. And she can't move forward because she's so full of all their fear. How about you lay off? How about you give her an opportunity to just kind of do what she can? If she wants to be a veterinarian, it's going to happen in her life that that's the direction she needs to go. And she may fumble a little bit. You can be supportive and loving and kind and good by giving her lots of opportunity. But don't fill her full of your fear. I, I was working with a family and the dad, the, the, the daughter wanted to do all of these amazing things. And the father was so afraid that she was going to fail. He didn't want her to even try. He wanted her to just take the safe route. And, and he, you know, was almost yelling at me, you know, I don't want her to fail. And I'm like, no, why not? If she fails, you're here now to help her through it. 
do you want to wait until she's 40 and she fails? Yeah, because when she's 40 and she fails, she's going to be a lot higher up on that cliff. Mm-hmm. And when she falls, it might be a mortgage, a marriage, <laughs> like yeah. a lot of responsibilities. Yeah. And when she falls off that cliff, I'm telling you, she might die. She might. But she's not very far up the trail right now. If she falls off the cliff, well, she might break her leg. That might think, be bad. I think when, when you were talking, the thing that really hit to me is don't fill them full of your fears. Don't fill them full of your fears. And to me, that, I mean, I I have two two wonderful daughters. Neither of them are independent readers. And I wasn't an independent reader till I was 12, right? So I've been through this, right? I know what it's like. And I, I, I know that they're going to be you're, able you're to feeling read. their pain. But I... I, I, you know, I, I don't want them to feel the pain that I felt in social situations when I couldn't read, feeling stupid, feeling left behind, feeling like everybody else had something that I didn't have, you know? So it's like, I don't want them to do that. Right. So then I'm feeling them full of fear instead of just standing there holding them, letting them know it hurts. I know it hurts. I know it hurts when they call on you to read and you can't. I'm so sorry, sweetie. We're working on it and we're going to get there. But it, it's so hard for the parent because you just want to be like, no, you got to learn to read. I freak out, you know, and, and instead of holding a space for your children to be in pain is way harder, I feel like. So we we just, you know, we mask a so, place. So in. Tatiana, I am yeah. so grateful that you brought that subject up because I was your mother, actually, just saying, so you know. <laughs> I watched you do that thing, right? And I'm looking, I'm thinking back on what what happened to me. And I have to be perfectly honest with you. I was probably too stupid to be afraid. I was, <laughs> you guys are laughing. I know. Maybe I was naive, I don't know. But I don't know. Uh, just, I, I knew we were struggling. And I knew I had to stop the struggle between you and I. Yeah, I remember lots of crying when we were reading. <laughs> I remember one day I was like, it's not the same word. It's a totally different word. And it was it was obviously the same word on the different page. But like, yeah, I do remember fighting a lot. And then it just stopped. Yeah, I do, I do remember when we just stopped doing that. And we did other things. Yeah, I do remember that. It came and and then I I would say I'm probably the most well read of everybody in the family besides dad. I would obviously. say, I would say yeah. that's true. You know, and that's what I keep having to say to myself is like I don't need Sarah to be reading at ten. I need her to be reading at thirty, because she loves it, right? And and just it's again that perennial education. It's keeping that in mind. Sight like this is a long term journey. Like to me, I probably read thirty or forty books a year. And it shocks me that my peers don't read. Like I'm reading a book a week, you know, if mom too, because I have a dirty house, I has to get clean and I'm going to listen to a book while I do it because otherwise, what, what am I doing with my life? You know? <laughs> yeah. I, maybe we have gone completely off um, subject, Heidi. Uh, do you want to bring us back? <laughs> well, to be honest, we have been talking for an hour. And we're going to have to end for today, but 
oh my gosh, there are so many more topics I want to talk to you about. So let's just stop now and know Wait, that before we stop forward. Yes. I, I want to if you could say one thing right now, Anelody, to our current Lemmy mentors, what would you say to them? Mm. Stop the freak out. Settle down in and do what you do well. Um, the freak out isn't helping you. Put one foot in front of the other. If you don't, if you don't have any greater vision than that, that's okay. Do to put one foot in front of the other. Trust yourself. Trust that you can. If God is calling you to this, which I think uh, home educating is a calling, I really absolutely believe that. If God is calling you to that, he's not going to leave you comfortless. He's not going to desert you. Um, I do know that when I started home educating, I have in-laws that are educators. My father-in-law was a, I had a doctorate degree. My mother-in-law was a kindergarten teacher. My, my father-in-law taught at the college. And I, I think they were, they were so freaked out when they thought this this daughter-in-law, this uneducated daughter-in-law is going to ruin their grandchildren. <laughs> I had, I didn't, I didn't, I told you when we, when you and I started working on Cave Liberty, I had nothing. I had no, no knowledge whatsoever of American history Amer and uh, politics at all, uh, uh, political forms, I, uh, none whatsoever. And you were at that, that point you were 16. So I was, I'd been around a long time, <laughs> but I'm pretty smart about it now. Just saying I've read a lot <laughs> because I can trust that process because I can invest in, I just, I'm invested. It's a calling. So I'm invested. Yeah. And you also reached out to the mentors in your life and yep. had the support. I did not go mentorless. You are exactly right. Right. And that's really the whole reason we're doing this today is to give that support to these home educators, these parents, these mentors who are doing their best to give the best to their kids and see that that genius in each person. So it brings me a lot of joy to be able to pass on what I have gained in experience over life. Thank you for the invitation. We're so grateful that you've been able to share so much with us and we look forward to having you share more. So it'd be my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training, we hope you walk away uplifted and inspired, but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things.